Um, good morning, everybody. Good, good to be here uh, in Three Rivers. Uh, we continue to make our way through First Peter, and uh, I guess I drew the straw to get to talk about wives and husbands today. Um, so just fair warning, uh, nobody's off the hook uh, today, but uh, years ago I was at a conference and, uh, with, with a, a pastor that, that I tended to, I followed, listened to his sermons online a lot, and someone I respected, and uh, at this conference somebody asked, it was, there was a Q&A session, and somebody asked the question, um, you know, how, how do you know when you're preaching the gospel? And his answer was that you haven't begun to preach the gospel until you've begun to rub up against people's lives. Um, and today is one of those messages that might probably going to rub up against some people's lives, and, and that's okay because um, you know the, the gospel, as time goes on, uh, our, our culture is moving more and more away from you know what we might call Judeo-Christian values, and, and so the message of the gospel has always been offensive, but um, it, just in our cultural moment that we're in, it, it's more offensive you know than it was a few years ago. Uh, our text today deals with Christian women as it pertains to their husbands and the role of Christian husbands as it pertains to their wives. And the bulk of the text uh, speaks to women, but Peter is also going to speak to men uh, as we get to the end. Uh, But it's noteworthy to say that Peter is working off of a presupposition here that just due to time constraints, we don't have time to fully uh, unpack the the presupposition of uh, the biblical God-given roles for men and women. Uh, so uh, understand that there's a presupposition that, that God has ordered things in creation to be a certain way, ultimately for our good uh, and more so for his glory. When God created the first man, Adam, he recognized that it wasn't good that Adam was alone. If you've read the creation account in Genesis, uh, God would say all throughout the account that, that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. And there comes a point where he says something isn't good. And the thing that wasn't good was that, that man, uh, Adam, didn't have uh, anybody, didn't have a companion. It's not good that he was alone. So then God uh, created Eve as a helper for Adam, the Bible says. And, and that word helper tends to rub up against us and, and cause offense. And so it's important that we understand what the Bible means by this term helper. It doesn't mean helper in the sense that Adam needed somebody to make him a sandwich. It's not, not that kind of a helper. Um, you ever watch war movies? We, last night we watched Saving Private Ryan. And you ever watch war movies? Uh, and there's always the guy that's got the backpack that's got the radio on it. And when things get really, really bad, somebody finds the guy with the radio and they grab that phone and they call for help. That, that's what God had in mind as, as a helper for Adam. Um, so it's important that we understand that. That being said, um, th- there are many scenarios where um, even Christian marriages today don't fit the biblical ideal. Uh, Peter's going to pick one today that, that he's going to single out, uh, but there are many scenarios uh, that we could talk about. Um, and, and again, time just doesn't allow us to do that today. Um, the women's liberation and the feminist movement for years have been working hard, uh, fighting for equality and equal rights for women. And there's no question uh, that women at times have been marginalized uh, by what we might call toxic masculinity. You might learn some new terms today if you're not familiar with some of these uh, terms. Some people would say it's toxic masculinity that built America, right? And so we should be thankful for it. And, and there are these extreme views that, that don't fit the biblical narrative. And so hopefully today, at least we're going to scratch the surface uh, of just God-given roles uh, for husbands and wives in the context of Christian marriage. 
From the very beginning, however, these extremes come from sinful behavior, both on the part of men and women. The modern liberated woman and the historic toxic man are no more than just caricatures that fall short of God's good design for those that would bear his image. The Bible, we believe, is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word, and it gives a much higher view of both femininity and masculinity than what the modern ideals have to offer. Uh, The biblical view would turn these uh, views upside down, or rather right side up, we might say. Because of the cultural moment that we're in, this uh, can obviously be somewhat of a, a bit of a hot topic, we might call it. Um, as a matter of fact, what I'm about to do, some people might say I'm about to mansplain to some of you ladies, and you can look that up later if you're not familiar with that term. Uh, not my goal today to mansplain anything to anybody. My goal today is to, like, let's just see what the Bible has to say to us, and let's let the truth of the gospel rub up against us in ways that are for our good uh, and are for God's glory. So with that being said, um, we're going to be in First Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. I did a quick Google search um, of feminists, just because I was kind of curious, um, you know, what feminists are saying these days uh, as it would pertain to maybe these God-given roles that we're going to talk about. Um, Rihanna, I don't know if any fans of Rihanna are out there, but Rihanna says that there's something so special about a woman who dominates in a man's world. It takes a certain grace, strength, intelligence, fearlessness, and the nerve to never take no for an answer. Uh, Beyonce. Beyonce says that we need to reshape our own perception of how we view ourselves. We have to step up as women and take the lead. Naomi Wolf says that I conclude that the enemy of a woman is not lipstick, but guilt. We deserve lipstick if we want it. And we deserve free speech and we deserve to be sexual and we deserve to be serious or whatever we please. We are entitled to wear cowboy boots to our own revolution. Julia Burchill says a good part and definitely the most fun part of being a feminist is about frightening men. (laughs) Louisa May Alcott says, the emerging woman will be strong-minded, strong-hearted, strong-souled, and strong-bodied. Strength and beauty must go together. That last quote, I I can get behind that last line, that strength and beauty go together. But but I think what we will hopefully see today is that the kind of strength and the kind of beauty that go together are far different than what the modern feminist movement would have us believe. I think this is... Kind of accidentally, she stumbled upon a a biblical truth. The Apostle Peter is going to show us just the kind of strength and beauty for which God made women, and it's going to fall woefully short of modern ideals. Maybe a better way to say it is that modern ideals, by comparison, are going to fall woefully short to God's biblical ideal, fall woefully short to God's intentional design and good standard uh, for women and for men who bear his image. So Peter starts off in chapter 3 saying, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And so he tells wives to be subject to their own husbands. And that's where, again, the gospel, the truth of God's word tends to rub up against us. But notice what he says before he says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. He says, Likewise. Because he says, Likewise, we have to pay attention to what did he just finish saying. And if you've listened to the last couple of weeks in particular, the last couple of messages in Peter, uh, he talks about uh, servants being subject to their employers or slaves and masters. But, but you know, the best thing that we have today is, is employers uh, and employees that, that be subject to your bosses, even the bad ones, even the ones that aren't good. 
Uh, before that, he talks about uh, all Christians being subject to the governing authorities that God has placed over us. Right? The Bible tells us that, that it's God who establishes kings and God who establishes rulers. And so e- even the government authorities that, that we might not be so hip on, uh, the Bible tells us be subject to those governing authorities insofar as they don't come against the word of God. He tells us that it's our duty as good citizens to be subject to those who govern us. And so when we get to this section in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, when he talks about wives being subject to their husbands, there's a context here that Peter has been building that, that all Christians are subject to somebody or something. And it's part of our living in this world that we would be subject to things that God has put over us, ultimately subject to God himself. But, but the authorities that God has established and the authority structures that God has established. And so he tells wives to be subject to their husbands. And he doesn't really qualify this statement. He doesn't say wives be subject to their husbands if they love you or if they're good to you or if they treat you well. He just says wives be subject to your husbands. Now, it's worth probably taking a minute to talk about what this doesn't mean before we talk about what it does mean. And what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that, that if a husband asks a wife to abandon their faith in Christ that she should do that. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that if a husband asks a wife to sin that the wife should do that. Right? These are things that come up against God's word. It doesn't mean that a wife is always supposed to agree with her husband and never present a differing view. And, and we'll unpack that maybe a little more as we go. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that if a husband is unfaithful that, that the wife just has to tolerate that and put up with that without uh, recourse according to the Bible. It doesn't mean that, that if a, a wife is in an abusive relationship, either verbally or physically, that, that those things have to stand. Uh, and, and sadly, throughout history, the, some of these things have been taught that, that wives should put up with these kinds of things. And that's not what Peter, I don't believe, is telling us here. Peter's call for Christian wives to be subject to their husbands or subject just to something is in line with the previous sections. Again, he calls Christians to be subject to governing authorities. He calls employees to be subject to their employers. And Peter doesn't qualify those based on whether that subjection is deserved or not. The call to subjection for all Christians is a reflection of ultimately their faith in Christ. Do we believe that God's design for us is valid? And do we believe that it's good? Do we believe that the authorities that God has placed over us is good by his good intention, by his perfect intention? If we back up to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. And so here Peter gives us the, the gospel connection to the call to subjection. And he reminds us of who Christ is and what Christ has done. He reminds us that God stepped into human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and subjected himself to his own creation, who he had rightful authority over in the first place. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he considered equality with God a thing not to be grasped, 
And he came and, and he allowed his own creation to revolt against him and nail him to a cross. And Peter tells us that he's our example. Jesus could have come ready to fight and he would have won the fight hands down, right? But he didn't come ready to fight. He came to subject himself to his own creation for our good and for his glory so that he could die for our sins. And if he is our forerunner, if he's our example, as Peter calls him, then we ought to take our cues from Jesus as Peter calls us to be subject to authority structures that he's placed in our lives for our good. And so the call to subjection at the end of the day really is a matter of faith. It's not about femininity or masculinity. It's a matter of faith and our ability, our willingness to subject to God-given authority structures is a reflection ultimately of our faith in Christ. And so the call that Peter gives to wives to be subject to their own husbands as we've covered a little bit what it isn't, let's talk about what it is. It says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. He's not saying that all women have to be subject to all men everywhere, right? This isn't like man's world that Peter is trying to build here. He's saying that wives are to be subject to their own husbands. Again, as a reflection of ultimately faith in Christ. And this, this rubs up against any of us being called to subjection to anything, rubs up against our individualistic, independent, autonomous notions of humanity. And the reason for this, it goes all the way back to creation, right? Back up to to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 when God created the world. He created everything that we see, all of creation. And at the pinnacle of creation, he creates mankind, creates Adam, and he creates Eve. And he tells Adam and Eve, everything is yours. It's all for your good. It's all for your enjoyment. Your job is simply to be caretakers of what I've given you. Everything is yours except for the fruit of that one tree. And of course, our human nature, right? We want the thing that we can't have. We didn't want it before somebody said we couldn't have it. But when someone says we couldn't have it, it's the thing now that we want the most, right? And so Adam and Eve, we know the story, right? They they ate of the fruit that God said, don't eat of that particular fruit. And all of a sudden, through their rebellion, the creation's rebellion against its creator, sin has now entered the world. Individualism has now entered the world. Autonomy has now entered the world. Independence, so we think, has entered the world as a result of this rebellion against the Creator. Prior to that happening, have you ever thought about this? That creation for a time was perfect. There was perfect harmony between the creation and the Creator. We don't know for how long, but there was a time where there was perfect harmony. And then sin entered the world and it messed it up. It messed up this harmony because of human rebellion. And as a result of this, in Genesis 3.16, God speaking says to the man and the woman, it says that your desire shall be contrary to your husband and your husband shall rule over you. In other words, because of their rebellion, all of a sudden marriage relationships between man and woman, it got more difficult and it's our own fault, right? We messed it up. Because rebellion and sin entered the world, there's now going to be contention in this marriage relationship that wasn't there before. So because of this sin, because of our rebellion against God's created order, the result of it is is that everything is harder than God intended it to be, and it's our fault. We made it that way by our rebellion, by trying to live in God's world, but not according to God's ways. 
Notice that Peter doesn't qualify, again, this call by telling wives to only be subject to their husbands if they think they deserve it. He goes on to say, wives be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the one example that Peter picks is that if you have an unbelieving husband, and there's a whole lot of scenarios between having the ideal husband and having an unbelieving husband, there's a lot of scenarios there in between. But Peter just goes right for the jugular and says, even if you have an unbelieving husband, wise, be subject to that husband. Again, short of maybe some extraordinary circumstances that we've already talked about, this is God's design. Now, it's worth noting that in the culture to which Peter was speaking, it would have been the common practice that women would take the religion of their husband. When a, when a woman would marry a man, that, that she was just expected to take his religion. Whether she, you know, she didn't really have a choice. That was just the culture of Peter's day. And he's telling the women of his day to stay strong in the faith. Even if you have an unbelieving husband, there's a possibility that that unbelieving husband might be one without you ever saying a word. What he's not saying to women is like, don't say anything. He's not saying that. He's not saying, you know, don't, don't ever speak up, don't ever do anything like that. But he's saying even if your husband is, is not a believing husband, even if your husband is not a Christian husband, that you, women, stay strong in the faith. That as you stay strong in the faith, that there's a possibility that that could be the very thing that causes your husband to come to faith. I don't think Peter is saying that this is a predictable result that will happen every time, as much as he's saying that, that if you don't stay strong in the faith, there's zero chance that your unbelieving husband is going to come to faith because of you. There's zero chance if you don't stay strong in the faith. And so God is calling Christian women, Christian wives, in faithfulness to Christ to be subject to their husbands, who God has appointed as the head of the household, and to stay strong in their faith, even if that husband is far from that ideal even if the husband is on the opposite end of the spectrum from that ideal. And in so doing, this is ultimately a reflection of your faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on in verse 3 to talk about, uh, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of the hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden in the person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. And so it just keeps, the hits keep coming for women from Peter, right? Be subject to your husband. Don't worry about your clothes, your hair, your makeup, right? Be peaceful, be quiet. Um, I don't think Peter is saying here that those things don't matter. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think what Peter is saying here is that there's a beauty that can come from inside of a woman that far exceeds what can come from the outside. I don't think he's saying that the outside doesn't matter and that it's not important I don't think he's saying that at all. But the contrast of the beauty that can come from, an in, from inside of a woman far exceeds that which can be uh, made to be seen on the outside. He talks about the beauty of a woman being a gentle and a quiet spirit. And it makes me think of uh, something that I witnessed here several months ago. Maybe some of you guys saw the news here in Bend. I think it was last, maybe last fall. I can't remember exactly when it was. Uh, but there was a protest that happened in Bend. Uh, and there was, there was a bus that came uh, from town to pick up 
some undocumented uh, immigrants. Uh, did I get that right, Jordan, the right term? Un- undocumented immigrants. Uh, I got busted last week for saying something else, so um, wanted to get it right this time. Uh, anyway, th- this crowd gathered and they blocked the bus. Maybe you saw this on the news. I was kind of fascinated by this and, and watched it throughout the day. I had it streaming on my phone. And this big crowd gathered in Bend in the back parking lot of this hotel and they were blocking this bus and I mean, just hours. I, mean, I think 12 or 14 hours or something like that. And the crowd kept growing and growing. Uh, and there were two women that were leading this protest. Um, one woman was, was with an organization that you, you might know if I had told you the name, but that's not important to the story, so, so I'm not going to say that. But, uh, and then another woman was connected to a local church. And very different women. And throughout the course of the day, there were different times they would grab the bullhorn and they would address the crowd. And this was a pretty hot issue, and there were times where the crowd was riled up and kind of pitchforks were out, so to speak, uh, and times where there was some calm over this crowd. And it seemed to be, as I watched this throughout the day, that when the first woman in particular would grab the bullhorn, uh, she had a very strong personality, you could just tell. I don't know either of these women personally, but very, very strong personality. And when she would grab the bullhorn and speak, the crowd would just get fired up, right? They, they would chant things, you know, negative towards law enforcement, um, you know, fists are in the air. Uh, and then she would set down the bullhorn and this other woman would grab the bullhorn. And I don't know what it was about her, but when she grabbed the bullhorn, the crowd just went, <sighs> there was this collective calm. You know, she was a social justice warrior and she was there um, to fight. I think the first one was there to fight people and the second woman, I think, was there for a cause. I think that was probably part of the difference. But when the second woman grabbed the bullhorn, there was just this collective calm that came over the crowd. And both women garnered attention, right? They were, they were listened to. They were looked up to as, as leaders of, of this protest, but they were coming from very different places. And that, that, that's what fascinated me, not so much the reasons why they were there or anything like that. I just was it just fascinating, fascinating to me, the dynamics of these, these two people when they would grab the bullhorn and how the crowd would respond. Both women had a type of a strength. One was contentious and the other was calming. I think it's the latter that Peter is talking about here, this inner beauty that can come from a woman. Not being a doormat, not laying down, not never speaking up. Not having an opinion, Peter's not talking about those kinds of things. But there's this inner strength and there's and this inner beauty that, that was demonstrated by this second woman that I watched in these protests. She was a strong personality also. She had some very definite opinions and some definite ideas about what was happening that day. And, and whether you agreed with her or not, th- there was a respect that she garnered from where she was coming from because she wasn't contentious at all. And and it really was a beautiful thing to watch. I didn't agree with where she was coming from at all, but I had respect for her whole approach to this thing more so than the first woman. And I think this is what Peter's talking about is something like that. And it's that kind of an inner beauty that Peter is saying that has the possibility to win even an unbelieving husband as you subject yourself to him for your good and for God's glory. Not only that, but Peter tells us that This is very precious in God's sight. This is a God-glorifying thing. Our culture judges the outward appearance, probably more so on women than on men, but but our culture judges the outward appearance. And and that's a a tough thing to keep up with because cultural ideas of beauty, like they change over time, don't they? What the culture thought was beautiful 20 years ago might not be the same thing that the culture thinks is beautiful today. So it's this moving target that we're always chasing after. 
But Peter is telling us that God's ideal for a woman is that there's a beauty that comes from inside. That, that ideal never changes. It's not a moving target. It's precious in God's sight because God sees the inside far more than he sees what's on the outside. And the substance, ladies, is on the inside far more than it is on the outside. And then he goes on to say in verse 5 that this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Adam, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and if you do not fear anything that is frightening. And so Peter gives an example to point to, to look back onto in a history that the people of his day would have been quite familiar with. He says, what I'm talking about here, this this inner strength, this inner beauty that comes from inside of a woman, this is how the women of old used to act. And he points specifically to Sarah. And I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Sarah and Abraham, but when I first read that, my mind immediately went to a couple of places in the story of Abraham and Sarah, where Abraham, uh, as they were traveling and they were, they were going into a place and he told his wife, you need to tell them you're my sister, not my wife, because if they think you're my wife, they're going to kill me. And they would have killed him so that they could have had her, right? So Abraham basically using his wife as a shield to hide behind, to use his wife to protect him when he should have been her protector, right? That happened a couple of times. And I don't think Peter is saying like women be like that. I don't think he's saying put up with that. Abraham had some really great moments in his life and demonstrated great faith in God. But there were these couple of moments where he demonstrated almost no faith in God whatsoever. And when Peter says, look at Sarah, how she obeyed Abraham. I don't think he's talking about that, but I think he's talking more about a woman who lived a life that honored her husband, who lived a life that respected her husband, even in the moments when he didn't necessarily deserve it. Far from it, as a matter of fact. Sarah referred to Abraham as Lord, not, not capital L Lord like we would refer to God, but a small L, like, like culturally in their day, a sign of respect was for a woman to refer to her husband as Lord. And Sarah lived a life that exemplified a woman that respected her husband. And Sarah was no pushover. If you have read much of their story, she was not a doormat. She was one who was afraid to speak up. And so Peter is saying, look at Sarah, look at the woman of old, look at specifically at Sarah and how she lived with Abraham. And he says, ladies, you are her children if you follow suit, not fearing anything that's frightening. And that's a big statement right there because there's a lot of things that are frightening and a lot of things that we naturally fear, right? He says, you're Sarah's children if you do good and you don't fear anything that's frightening. In other words, I think what Peter is saying is that, that when you exhibit faith in Christ, more than you exhibit faith in yourself, when you fear God, more than you fear the culture of the day telling you what you ought to be, it's a beautiful thing. Peter's saying that women display their faith in God by trusting his design for the different and complementary roles as being good and right by God's intentional design. Proverbs chapter 31 gives us a biblical vision for what a godly woman is. And I want to just take a moment and read the chapter because it's great. Proverbs 31 says that an excellent wife who can find She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her 
and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all of the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands to hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and she sells them and she delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. All of that to say that the type of woman that Peter is talking about is not a pushover. Right? This vision that Proverbs 31 gives us of a godly woman is, is a hardworking, strong, beautiful woman. And this is what God has in mind. And this is, this is a, pres- a part of the presupposition that Peter has into this call to wives being subject to their husbands. He would have certainly had this vision in mind of God's ideal for a hardworking, strong, beautiful woman. The woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And that's the message to women here today. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Men, you're now on the hook as we get into verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. How does the world view manhood? General George Patton says that duty is the essence of manhood, that a man will will always do what needs to be done. Samuel Taylor Coolridge says that genius is the power of carrying the feelings of manhood or the feelings of manhood into the powers of manhood. So in other words, like, man, we don't have time to feel, we have time to do, right? That, That we have power. John Eldridge, an author some of you might be familiar with, says that it was men who stopped slavery It was men who ran up the stairs in the Twin Towers to rescue people. It was men who gave up their seats in the lifeboats of the Titanic. Men are made to take risks and live passionately on behalf of others. And I think the Bible would probably agree with that last part, but but the ideal here that that we try to put on men is that men always have to be strong and rough and tumble and and ready, ready to run towards danger. Camille Paglia says that a woman simply is, but a man must become. Masculinity is risky and elusive. It's achieved by a revolt from a woman and it's confirmed only by other men. Manhood coerced into sensitivity is no manhood at all. In other words, like men, don't cry. Don't show your feelings, right? We all get uncomfortable when we see a man cry and show his feelings, right? And and, and the cultural ideal would say, don't do that. But Peter's called a man, no no offense, Brent, sorry. (laughs) 
He's, he's known as... <laughs> He's known as the crying pastor. Here's where you get your exoneration, Brent. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. In other words, husbands, be sensitive to your wives, is what Peter is saying. And this kind of goes against the cultural ideal, right? This cultural ideal has a term that we said earlier, toxic masculinity. The cultural ideal that says that men run towards danger, well, that, that's toxic masculinity. The cultural ideal that, that says that men must produce and they must build and they must conquer, culture calls that toxic masculinity. And, and God has created men to do those things, and, and men certainly have taken those things to a toxic level, without a doubt. But here, P- Peter isn't calling men to dominate their wives. He isn't calling men to have the last word. He isn't calling men to to not consider the feelings of their wives. He's saying, likewise, in other words, connected to the previous calls to subjection, connected to the call to, to be subject to governing authorities, connected to the call to be subject to even the worst employers, connected to the call for wives to be subject to their husbands. Husbands also, in the same manner, with your wives in an understanding way. Last week when, when I got to preach this in Lapine, uh, Mike McCarter prayed for me before I came up and he, he made a comment in his prayer about how sometimes during sermon prep, like we get beat up during the week as we're preparing a sermon. And, and Mike had no idea, but like this beat me up, right? Because I'm not always the most understanding person to my wife and she'll probably tell you that. Right? This beats us up, this rubs up against us, this ruffles our feathers because it's like, I get to stand up here and say this to you guys and like, dang, I gotta, this is for me too, right? As much as it is for anybody else, it's for me too. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. And I think that's just, just a simple reference to men are physically stronger than women, generally speaking. Maybe not always the case, but in general, I think that's what Peter is referring to. But here's the great equalizer. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. This is where Peter connects the gospel to this call to husbands to live with your wives in an understanding way. Peter says that that husbands and wives equally share in the inheritance given to us by Christ. And what that does is that levels the playing field and it says that not one is better than the other. It levels the playing field. It doesn't say that God gives men special favor. It doesn't say that at all. This is the leveling of the playing field that both husbands and wives, both men and women, equally share in the inheritance that we get from Christ as followers of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that, that God will for all of eternity pour out upon us his immeasurable riches. We can measure a lot of things today. We can't measure God's riches. And he'll pour those riches out both on, on men and on women equally. Not, not in an unequal sort of a way where one gets more than the other. And so, so this is the punch to the gut right here where Peter reminds us that, that the, the, the ground is level. The ground is level for both men and women. And then he tells men, live this way so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's kind of a weird, a weird statement. What is it that he's saying here? And I think the plain thing that Peter is saying is that 
when husbands in particular choose not to live in God's world according to God's way, and then they pray to God asking for help and how to live, there's a disconnect there. It's disingenuous to say, I'm not going to live the way God's designed me to live, and then at the same time say, God, help me. It doesn't make sense at all. And so I think Peter is saying that, that when you choose not to live in God's world, when you choose not to function according to God's good design for you as a man, for you as a husband, and then you pray to God and say, God, help me with this wife. Right? Remember when, when Eve, when she bit the fruit, and Adam comes along and says, what happened? And then Adam bit the fruit, and then, then God says, what happened? Adam says, she did it. Right? He just was quick to point the finger. Right, rather than taking responsibility. When you choose not to live according to God's good design and then ask God for help, but what, what do you do when your kids do something that you have told them not to do? And then they come to you and say, that didn't go so well. Right? If you're like me, you said, I told you so. I tried to warn you about this. Right? Maybe next time let's do it different. And I think what Peter is saying here is that, that to the men in particular, that when we live that way, it hinders our prayers. Right? Maybe God isn't going to answer the prayer for help when he's already spelled it out clearly, live this way, and we choose not to do it. Right? I think that's just the plain thing that he's saying here. In Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Paul gives this, this impossible call to husbands, basically to love like Jesus loved. We can't, we can't love, no one can love like Jesus loved. We can't. And Paul gives this impossible call. Husbands, this is, this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love in the way that Jesus loved. The church is perhaps the thing that Jesus loves the most because he gave himself up for the church. He died for the church. And he died that he might sanctify her, that he might make the church holy doing so through the washing of the word so that one day that he could present the church, it says, in splendor before God the Father. In the same way, he says, husbands, love your wives in that way. So what does it mean to live in an understanding way with your wife? That you would live in such a way that like Christ sacrificed for the church, that you would sacrifice the same way for your wife. But in Ephesians 5.32, Paul says that this mystery is profound. If you notice in that, those, those verses, he's talking about the church and he's talking about marriage and it seems like he goes back and forth. What's he trying to say? He says this mystery is profound, Ephesians 5.32, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And, and what is it that refers to Christ and the church? The, the marriage relationship between Christian husbands and Christian wives. That when lived out in God's world according to God's way, shows the watching world something about who Christ is. We, we get to live the gospel in a very visible sort of way in, in a lot of ways in our life, but, but, but the Apostle Paul doesn't, doesn't call 
friendship evangelism a mystery, right? Where, where we just are nice people in the world and we try to be friends in the hopes that someday somebody will ask us, why are you so nice? Paul doesn't call that a mystery, right? He calls marriage, the relationship between husbands and wives, which is more contentious than it was originally designed to be because of our own sin, right? Because of our own fault. That, that when we can wade through that and we can live with one another according to God's good design, his right design for those that bear his image, that's a mystery. The watching world looks at that and says, something's different there. The watching world looks at that and they get to see visibly the gospel play out within Christian households. What a neat thing, neat opportunity that we get to show the world who Christ is as wives are subject to their husbands and as husbands live in an understanding way with their wives, both as a reflection of our faith in Christ, as it shows the watching world our faith in Christ in a very visible sort of a way. And so what I would ask you to consider today in light of this, whether your feathers were ruffled today or not, whether the gospel rubbed up against your life or not, hopefully the gospel rubbed up against all of our lives. It rubbed up against mine today, even standing up here. As the gospel has rubbed up against us today, do do we trust Christ? Do, Do we trust what Christ has done for us? Do we trust God's good design, even as it flies in the face of cultural norms and cultural ideals? And those cultural norms and cultural ideals are just going to get farther and farther away from biblical norms and biblical ideals as time goes on. Like those, those two paths are not going to cross probably ever again. They're, they're diverging paths going in different directions with different messages and different, different ends in mind. And, and so for us, the question is, do we trust Christ in, in this call, in this whole section of Peter's letter to be subject to what God has put over us? And so I would ask you to consider that today. We pray. Father, we're thankful today. Thankful that you love us and thankful that uh, that Christ died for us. Thankful that Christ is our example. Thankful that he did for us things that we could and would never do for ourselves. Thankful that we have your word to tell us how to live rightly in the world that you designed and you created. But God, we, we need your help because in our sinfulness and in our rebellion, we fight against what you say is good and right. And so help us today, uh, not only to understand what is good and what is right, but help us today uh, to live in ways that are good and that are right uh, as those who bear your image, as those who have been tasked with uh, taking the good news of the gospel to the world around us. God, help us not only to, to speak it, but help us to live it in ways that cause people to pay attention to who you are because of how husbands love their wives and how wives are subject to their husbands. God, help us in this. We need it, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.